Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and for the next 40 minutes, we'll be having a, a conversation that's uh, quite unique. Uh, it's, it's very unlike the other conversations that I've had with Christian writers, uh, Christian scholars, and intellectuals, because the man I'll be talking to is Michael Weir. And what makes him different is that he has written a book that's had a, quite an impact on the Christian community at large. The book is called Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House About the Future of Faith in America. And that's because he actually worked in the White House for Barack Obama, and he actually uh, led the evangelical outreach in the 2012 campaign. He helped with the White House's engagement on religious and values issues uh, that included adoption and anti-human trafficking efforts. He was one of the youngest White House staffers, actually, in modern American history. And, and a lot of people uh, would, would find this very interesting simply because as one of the so-called ambassadors to America's believers, which is how BuzzFeed described Michael, a lot of people uh, I think are interested in how he managed to square the Barack Obama administration, which was considered by many Christians today to be one of the uh, most hostile administrations to American Christians in modern American history, and the fact that Michael Weir himself is pro-life and he is pro-traditional marriage. And I, I have wanted to talk to him ever since the, the reviews of his book started coming out. And so he graciously agreed to have a conversation with me, and this is that conversation. Uh, so I like to start off these interviews by just asking uh, you to tell our listeners a bit about your book, uh, your story. Um, I, I know your book has been getting a lot of attention, Reclaiming Hope, Lessons Learned in the Obama White House about the Future of Faith in America, and it takes quite a unique perspective. We're used to reading books by you know, Rod Dreher about the Benedict Option. Russell Moore has had some great books out lately as well. And now your book comes from sort of the heart of the administration that a lot of those books were dedicated to writing about. So tell us a bit about yourself and, and your book. Sure. So, um, yeah, so, so I, I wrote the book for a, a number of reasons. Um, first, you know, I wrote Reclaiming Hope because I think this is a pivotal moment for America, and uh, particularly for the for the American Church, and I wanted to uh, hopefully provide some resources that will help us navigate the, the months and, and years ahead. Um, and and uh, that is all grounded in in hope and a right understanding of of hope. Um, I also wrote the book um, uh, to provide uh, some insight, hopefully, and and. Um, perspective on how faith intersected with uh, President Obama's time in office and really with uh, in, in American politics and culture uh, this century. And so um, so the book walks through um, really the, the, the Obama years, uh, particularly the first term, and um, I, I don't think that you can understand President Obama's time in office uh, apart from the role that faith played, uh, and so, so that's that's reclaiming hope. I tell, I tell a bit about sort of my, my story and how I ended up working for the president. But the part of the book is is uh, trying to walk readers through seeing politics up close, the good and the bad, uh, and and the ugly, and um, 
emerging on the other side of that with with uh, still being hopeful uh, uh, and having that hope grounded in the right place. Well, yeah, let's let's give people a bit of chronological context because it's it's an extremely fascinating story. And the first question most people uh, have when they hear about your story is, how did somebody who is a Christian end up working for the Barack Obama administration when, as I mentioned before, most of, of the books that Christians are currently reading by, by various faith leaders who are trying to point the way forward look at the Obama administration as a, as a pretty dark eight years for the Christian community. Well, well so uh, I, um, uh, I, I met Barack Obama in 2007. I had followed his career uh, pretty, pretty closely, and we ended up being... Uh, we ended up crossing paths uh, in, in a hotel lobby. Um, uh, I told him I wanted to work for him. Uh, uh, I, I was uh, I shared many of his policy uh, commitments. Had some disagreements as, as well, but um, uh, sh- shared many of his policy commitments. He had um, just spoken out pretty um, forcefully against secularists in America who would. Uh, who would he said you know say that faith has no a role to play in political debates? He called it a practical absurdity that we would remove faith from our political and public discourse. And uh, the, the positive view of faith that he uh, conveyed was was something that was um, I, I think sorely needed uh, at the time. And so uh, I ended up working on his campaign. I worked uh, in his. Uh, uh, for his, uh, on the first inaugural, and then spent three and a half years uh, in the White House in the Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships, where we worked with religious communities uh, and nonprofits to serve those in need, um, and I helped uh, make sure that uh, voices of, of various faith communities were heard in outreach and policy debates, and then I ran his outreach for his re-election campaign, and so that was that was kind of the that was kind of the arc. Now, certainly during that time, there were um, moments uh, and issues that were uh, uh, that, that were um, deeply contentious with various slices of the American uh, American faith community. On the other hand, there were uh, policies and initiatives that we advanced that received broad support from the faith community. And so, it's um, uh, part of the reason why I wrote this this book is to flesh out. Um, the, the complexities of faith and politics uh, in in this time. Now, a lot of people, when when they look at his initial run, and uh, I've I've worked in the pro life movement for a lot of time, and I know you've worked with a lot of of pro lifers as well, is that his immediate his immediate disqualifier as a political candidate would have been his very extreme position on abortion. How did you square that when you began to work with him and work towards his reelection? Well, you know, it wasn't uh, so much. Um, so uh, I disagree with the president on uh, on, on the life issue. Um, what, what's what's important? To, um, I have an entire chapter on abortion uh, uh, in 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 the book, and part of what I track is the fact that actually when he ran in 2008, he made uh, he made uh, a statement that he was open to restrictions on abortion and. Within his first five months in office, at the height of his political capital, he went to Notre Dame and gave a speech on reducing abortions. Um, now, over the uh, over the 
sort of the uh, I, I I tell the story of that and, and why sort of the public policy rollout did not happen and there there's blame to be shared. What is important to know is that um, right now at the end of the president's time in office, the abortion rate is the lowest it's been in America since Roe v. Wade. Now there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, uh, uh, state pro-life efforts have made a significant impact, but the president's policies on supporting um, women and families, um, uh, on strengthening adoption, all the things that he talked about in his Notre Dame speech have also played a role. Um, and I think we need to recognize that as well. But to, to your core question of how I squared it, I, I didn't. I, I think um, political um, uh, our political parties and political candidates, Christians, are never going to feel completely at home working for any candidate. Um, what was also clear to me, though, is that especially when I got to the White House, that I was serving at the pleasure of the president. So my, my responsibility was, was not to uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, my, my, my responsibility was to, to work for him, and that's what I did. Now, very, very interesting, because in your book you talk about internal discussions about religion, and one of the reasons I was so interested in, in talking about you uh, with you uh, after you know reading some excerpts of your book and, and listening to a bunch of the interviews you gave and the panels you sat on was the, the perception of Christianity within the administration, how you responded to that, and, and again, this, just this dissonance between the story that you tell and the way that most people viewed uh, the Obama administration, and, and that's something that that I don't think I don't think that's a story that anybody has told yet, at least not that I'm aware of. What was it like as, as a Christian inside that administration, while outside, um, you know, the evangelical community by and large was was seen as an opponent of, of Barack Obama's administration to a large degree because of these really hot button culture war issues that he opposed them on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, part of so I have a chapter in my book on the contraception mandate, a chapter on the president's evolution on gay marriage. It was important to really walk through um, these issues, and I, I give a, a pretty clear-eyed, uh, take a pretty clear-eyed approach to them. I think one thing that's important to, uh, that uh, social conservatives will not be able to adequately engage on a lot of these questions um, if, uh, if they're not engaging um, with at least an awareness of the terms and the perspective of their quote-unquote opponents. And so you know, when it comes to religious freedom issues, um, you know, you often hear the narrative and, you know, fundraising emails and sort of that kind of thing that, you know, Every morning, you know, uh, people in the Obama administration were, were waking up, asking themselves, how can I destroy the church today? And, and that just wasn't the perspective. What, what was true and what is going to be true in an increasingly secularizing um, uh, uh, culture uh, and, and society is that there were certainly people who had less familiarity with uh, what it means to be religious what is a religious conscience. Um, uh, but it's important to locate the disagreement on substance and not antagonism because that wasn't how uh, the folks that were advocating for the contraception mandate, uh, frankly, uh, they weren't 
uh, religion wasn't on their mind. Right. Um, they viewed the policy as, uh, wow, this is a great way to, um, to expand access to what we believe are essential services for women. Now, there are intense and real policy disagreements to have on that, but let's argue on on those grounds. Let's let's argue on the grounds of is it is it the best thing to use an employer based insurance system that includes religious employers to as a sort of middleman for um, for administering and, and providing access to these services and and if uh, but but it really distorts things to um, uh, to to, uh, to have a war on religion, war on women sort of sort of narrative, and I, I critique both sides on that in, in reclaiming health. So a lot of people leveled accusations of, of insincerity. So you just mentioned there that a lot of people, you know, said the Barack Obama administration wakes up and says, how can we, you know, destroy the church today? And, and you've pointed out that, well, religion just wasn't on, on their radar to a large degree. But a lot of people then said, well, Barack Obama isn't actually Christian. Most of the members of his administration aren't actually Christian. And I've, I have both of, of Barack Obama's books. He, he articulates himself very, very well. Um, and what would you say his relationship to these issues was? Was he just coming from a fundamentally uh, secular progressive mindset, and that's how he reached his conclusion on these issues? Or would you say that from your personal experience that he actually uh, grappled with these issues and reached a conclusion that Christians couldn't live with? Yeah, so, so President Obama is a Christian. I've prayed with him. Privately, I've heard him speak about his faith in both public and private settings. Um, I, I think uh, you can look at uh, one thing I do in Reclaiming Hope is use his speeches to the National Prayer Breakfast to uh, help the reader understand the president's perspective on faith. Uh, really, over the course of four years at the National Prayer Breakfast, the president gave a, a pretty um, holistic uh, a perspective on his view of faith. So in 2009, he spoke about faith in the faith-based office. In 2010, he spoke about faith in the public square and how faith could motivate civility. In 2011, he talked about faith in his personal prayer life. And then in 2012, he talked about faith in public policy. And in that in that 2012 speech, he talked about uh, different ways his faith motivated his approach on um, public policy issues. And so, you know, taking that, it, it's clear that he um, unlike previous sort of democratic candidates and sort of a, a more classically sort of uh, you, you know democratic line that you know uh, that, that uh, faith has you know no role in, in public clearly has faith motivated his public policy views I think um, the, the way that he sussed those out on uh, on issues like the contraception mandate on issues like marriage um, certainly were at odds with uh, many in the faith community, and and the marriage issue, of course, is is a very fundamental one. Not just because of the threat to uh, religious liberty that uh, not only did the Supreme Court decision pose, but eventually uh, those fears were confirmed in a, in a lot of the states that had already initially legalized gay marriage. But again, back to the question of sincerity, right? Everybody remembers that moment right. where where Barack Obama informed. 
um, Rick Warren of the Saddleback Church that he believed marriage was between right. one man and one woman. And a, a, a lot of people just felt like, just like uh, the Clintons seemed to have you know, changed their mind right on schedule, that Barack Obama <laughs> held one position for political expediency. And uh, the second he reattained power and, and secured his second term, it was time to actually default to what he had privately thought but hadn't publicly said. Right. So, I, I, so again, I have an entire chapter on this, and I really hope folks will, will read it because I think the question they're asking is a fundamental one, which is um, uh, one of the president's former advisors um, wrote a book in which he uh, basically said that the president had supported gay marriage all along but knew it wasn't politically wise mm-hmm. to say so. Now the, the president hasn't um, – He's spoken to it a, a bit and sort of, uh, sort of. The White House did not categorically reject that accusation, um, uh, and uh, if that is true, then that poses serious questions about democratic accountability, about um, about um, about our politics generally. So it's it's not only if Politicians can mislead voters on their views on a subject, and not only that, but then have that deception or um, uh, praise as you know politically wise. Then, then what does it mean to um, what does it mean to vote? What does it mean to have a <laughs> you know a, a, a elections that are run in a way that people know what they're voting for? And so, um, I think the significant question uh, that you raise. When the president announced – a couple things. When the president announced his evolution, um, he did so before the election in 2012, which I think is significant. I, th- I think it was a – I think it was the right thing for him to announce it uh, in a way that gave the voters a chance to, to respond in 2012. Um, and then second, you know, he, he, he did so laying out uh, a path of how he got there. Um, which which seems uh, seems sensible and, and realistic to me, um, uh, 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 aside from this this senior advisor writing uh, writing otherwise. But I walk through this in detail in my book, and, and readers can can uh, will will hopefully feel better informed after reading the chapter on on just how the politics and the decision played out. Well, one of the one of the really fascinating tensions uh, that that you've highlighted is I think that that uh, it, it's very clear that you 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 very much uh, liked Barack Obama as a person, um, and that as such, when conflicts arose that um, con- that that really really created a tension between your personal like for the man and parts of his agenda and and, and other deeply held convictions, I I do think that's a tension that most Christians can understand because every single one of us has in our life somebody who fundamentally disagrees with us (laughs) on very deep held convictions. And the reason your story is interesting is because it's relatable in that fashion. We all know people who agree with gay marriage or, or uh, know, are pro-abortion or all of those different types of things. Um, you know, we're, we're still friends with them. We still love them. And, and, and that's, that's just the way it is. But on the flip side, you have that relationship with the most powerful man in the world. So it takes a story that Christians are familiar with and raises the stakes 
which is what I think yeah. creates a lot of the curiosity uh, about your yeah. story and makes your inner conflict uh, so much so much more interesting to people because it is relatable while simultaneously uh, incurring curiosity. And, and the one question that this this really brings me to is is the one thing that I'm sure you hear all the time um, is about the seeming maliciousness of the administration in the instance of the Little Sisters of the Poor, hmm. which I think uh, took a lot of people from saying, okay, Barack Obama is a fundamentally decent and civil man who happens to sincerely disagree with us on yeah. issues uh, that you know, we, we have deep-held convictions on, he has opposing deep-held convictions on. That doesn't mean he's a, he's a malicious man, but most people read into that situation as malice, and, and as somebody who, who experienced yeah. that conflict firsthand, um, what would you have to tell our listeners about it? Yeah. Well, I disagree pretty vehemently with uh, the, the administration's initial uh, approach to the mandate issue. Um, the, the, you know, I think on its, on its base, and, and for me, on its substance, the Little Sisters of the Poor case is... Um, uh, is about as obvious as any case that gets to the Supreme the Supreme Court level. In, in other words, it's not like a uh, uh, it's not an easy case, but no case that gets to the Supreme Court is easy. Um, here's, here's what I'd say. I think with the Little Sisters of the Poor case, uh, there, there was uh, if I had to, I wasn't in the administration at the time. I had already this was uh, this case was 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 later on. Uh, if, I, if I had a uh, venture, one of the primary concerns there would have been uh, the, the precedent it would set and uh, the, the extent to which the Little Sisters of the Poor case would lead to uh, decisions that would uh, uh, that would affect more than just a group of nuns. But but when a when a case is decided in the Supreme Court, it doesn't just apply to the Little Sisters of the Poor, but uh, applies across the board in a way that it could implicate uh, a broad range of organizations that was, was likely on the administration's mind. But, but, but again, it's one of those issues where um, where there's substantive policy disagreement. And on this issue, I, I, I'm on the other side of where the administration ended up. What's important is, uh, you know, I, I really would, would – I really would advise against. Um, I, it really wasn't a. Uh, think of, think about framing the argument in a way that the other side would accept, um, which is to say that even in the Little Sisters of the Poor case, uh, the, the administration's perspective was: uh, how do we maximize um, access to these essential, quote-unquote, essential health services? Um, not you know, how do we force a bunch of nuns to give out contraception? Now, of course, both questions were were at play there, but to, to use words like malicious, um, uh, uh, though I certainly understand the sentiment, I, I, the point I'm trying to make is that the administration's motivation was not malicious activity toward the religious community. They had their own motives, um, and, and it's important to recognize. I suppose to, to dodge the accusation of maliciousness, they they could they should have picked a group that wasn't named the Little Sisters of the Poor to to stake their well, claims so, on. Well, so that's the thing, right? So the administration doesn't pick doesn't pick the case. Actually, it was the religious liberty community and 
and very wisely, very you know, with, with a great sense of uh, a great political strategy. But uh, the administration doesn't pick the plaintiffs; the the, the plaintiffs pick them, pick themselves. So, so obviously, they were the little sisters of the poor were picked as a as you know the, the most sympathetic case that could have been picked, which which is obviously fair fair game. They were they were effective, and they shouldn't have been. Um, but 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 I just uh, it's not the administration did not single out uh, little sisters of the poor in, in, in this case. They were just the ones that the religious freedom groups decided to bring you know their case to the court. Right. It, 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 the the current state of the United States of America is at is very very interesting to me because increasingly it it's very obvious that nobody understands what the other side is saying because they no longer even speak each other's language. So uh, something that just recently happened, of course, was people found out about Mike Pence, uh, you know, de- declining to dine with women who were not his wife or go to boozy parties where, where without his wife. And, you know, this seemed like, you know, a rule that some reasonable people in certain contexts would, would choose to engage in to protect their marriage. And everybody went crazy and for me, that that entire that entire incident just encapsulated how people don't even understand each other. There was a, a major columnist in Canada who actually referred to Mike Pence's rule as as evidence of rape culture. Yeah, and, I saw that. And, and and this this sort of thing was highlighted in, in very profound ways. I thought in, in your book, uh, the Atlantic and the National Review and a number of major publications took a serious look at, at this one aspect of your book, which is the, the fact that, that most people in the Obama administration um, didn't even know how to relate to evangelicals. So one of the profound examples was was where uh, you had referenced in a report the least of these, and, yeah. and people just didn't understand what you were referring to because they didn't get the biblical reference. So tell our listeners a, a bit about that, that gap in language, because I think it's very clarifying for people to maybe not immediately attribute malice to the opposition if they can yeah. understand that we're speaking in terms that, that others don't understand. Yeah, well, well, that, well that's it. And um, so America is, uh, is the most, uh, has the highest number uh, percentage of religiously unaffiliated people that we've ever had. So mm-hmm. about a quarter of Americans are religiously unaffiliated, more than a third of millennials are religiously unaffiliated. Um, Obviously affects um, the the, uh, the the nature of uh, of who's hired and who gets elected and who uh, you know who who are who's in positions of power. Um, what I would advise Christians uh, and, and listeners to your show, um, about which obviously you're you're in a, an advanced you know, stage of this in Canada, which is to to, to view this as an opportunity for evangelization that we've never had before in, in the American context. Um, we have, for the first time, perhaps in American history, a generation of Americans um, who uh, do not uh, have preconceived notions, do not have uh, the levels of religious baggage that um, that previous generations have had. It's, it, they're not rejecting Christianity. They, they don't know it exists uh-huh. in many cases. That's a wonderful opportunity to take on um, 
the responsibility as, as Christians to help our neighbors understand what it means to be religious, understand what it means to follow uh, Jesus and what that, what that looks like. And I think we'll find, uh, as I think we're seeing in the UK right now, a greater openness to religious conversations than maybe we've experienced in the past. And so all of this is true. It affects our politics. It, uh, uh, it, it affects our media. But the way to respond to that is not to throw our hands up in the air and uh, sort of uh, decry the um, the changes that have occurred, but actually look for how God might be working in the midst of this um, to, to, to carry out his will. Well, and that's, of course, very interesting because the appropriate Christian response to being told we live in a post-Christian society is to, is to say, well, we actually live in a pre-Christian society. Those two things can be uh, simultaneous. But one of the things that like, I'd just like you to share with our listeners, just because I found the, the anecdote so impactful, is a, is a few of these stories about the, the religious disconnect that, that you detail in your book so that people can really understand uh, the inability of other people to understand the social context and the cultural lens with which uh, Christians view uh, things like the Obama administration. Well, sure. I mean, so, so you you already relate one that I tell in the book. I, I mean, uh, in, in Democratic politics, I, at one point I remember briefing uh, briefing a um, uh, my boss on a, uh, on a uh, on an outreach strategy and. Uh, at the conclusion of my briefing, this person uh, told me that uh, while it sounded good from a from a sort of uh, uh, from a technical standpoint, uh, that this person had not been inside a church in 20 years and, and did not really know what I was talking about. And so, um, and so I was going uh, and so I was going to have to uh, have have sort of wide latitude um, because. Because uh, sort of as far as the religious communities go, this person didn't know much. Now, I just want to be clear, you know, so A, I think if you talk to Republicans, if you, if you read David Crow's book, um, uh, Attempting Faith, uh, you'll find that this is not just a Democrat problem, um, uh, that, that this is, um, this is uh, there are political elements to it, but it's also a matter of changing demographics in this country and, and who, uh, who is able to uh, get to elite positions in, in either party and what that, what that uh, takes in many cases or, or doesn't take. Um, uh, so, so, and then just the last thing that I'd want to say on that is um, I, I worked with many faithful uh, Christians and those of other faiths when I was in the Obama administration. The president's chief of staff uh, last chief of staff, Dennis McCarra, is a committed Catholic. Jack Lou, um, when he worked on uh, Fridays early as an Orthodox Jew to, to, um, to respect the Sabbath. Um, and, so, uh, and, and so I don't want to leave the impression um, that, that sort of uh, the administration, you know, the, the Christians could not be found, including full office. What I'm trying to raise is the fact that 20 years ago, uh, you would not have been able to find anybody in any leadership position who did not know the phrase police. Um, and now uh, you can, and that has real implications and speaks into um, uh, speaks into circumstances in a way that 
if we understand and consider them, uh, it will help us navigate the years ahead. It will help us understand the types of framework and culture that we're working in. Uh, then, uh, the uh, sort of a final point here, let's take a look at the, at the title of, of your book, Reclaiming Hope, simply because um, one of the, the number one discussions in the Christian community, a discussion you've been part of on, on panels with writers like Rod Dreher, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, is yep. where does the hope lie? And, and, and I'll give a, a personal example that was very, very jarring uh, for me because I do a freelance work for, for a couple of different outlets. So I attended both the Trump inauguration and then I, uh, the following day I attended the Women's March on D.C. And at the Trump inauguration, uh, people were screaming and booing almost every Democrat that walked out. And I was at Obama's inauguration in 2013 as well. So the, the difference between the 2013 inauguration and this inauguration was the, uh, their guy had won and the rage hadn't even close to dissipated. Everybody was still just as angry. And I was at the, I was, I was at the very front of uh, the crowd on Capitol Hill, and I had friends at the very back. And so I checked with them to see if the chance of things like lock her up and the booze and the yelling uh, was just uh, you know, located where I was standing or right. if it was all the way to the back. And, and they tell me that this, this, this same thing was going from the front of the, of the Capitol to the back. And then the next day, right after Donald Trump declares that he's going to take power from the elites and give it back to the people, um, you know, the Women's March and, and, the, and the line of the speakers they have there said precisely the same thing. And I had a fairly jarring Sunday after those two events because I asked myself, where does the middle ground between these two groups lie? It doesn't seem like there's, there is a lot of middle, middle ground between these two extraordinarily polarized groups. And that's why I think a lot of people are really interested in this question of what do you do when it seems like the, the sort of the ideological civil war is underway and, and nobody's interested in finding out how the other side thinks, uh, which is why even in, I'm sure your Facebook newsfeed looks similar, right? It's always, it's always about, you know, media figures crushing this person and smacking down right. this person. And, and you, know, you know, John Oliver destroyed this person, right? This is sort yeah. of the way we view the opposition now. So as somebody who worked as a Christian inside Obama's administration, What's the way forward on all of this? Yeah. Well, you, you asked a, a very good question, and you know, I, I did a lot of traveling as well leading up to the election. And, and what I became, what became very clear to me was that politics was taking up a space in people's lives that it is not meant to take up. Right. Um, that politics is causing spiritual harm in the lives of Americans, and it's able to do that. Um, because we've left, uh, there, there's, there's a hole in Americans' lives that allows politics to come in and take up such large space in our own sense of identity and who we are and who others are. Now, this is not a problem that is going to go away anytime soon, um, and we could always rationalize our behavior based on how others behave, but um, they have to, uh, stopping it will have to start somewhere. Um, it is not safe to engage in politics with your feet planted in politics. The safest place to engage in politics is with your feet planted in the gospel. And that when you're, when you're finding your needs are met elsewhere by God, um, then you no longer need to go to politics to get 
your inner needs met, to get your affirmation, to get your sense of belonging. Um, and, and that is that is one of the principal problems our politics faces right now is that people are going to politics to get their needs met in a way that politics is not equipped uh, to meet your needs. And so uh, I'll just I'll just advise folks um, uh, start. Careful about how you're sucked into uh, engaging politically um, in the way that the world does. Um, uh, if, if you are a uh, so one of the ways to do this is to be very wary of, uh, of polarization and sort of over-identifying with a political party. So if if you are a, a Democrat, uh, as I am, uh, then one thing you could do is make sure that your Having equal measures of um, uh, me metrics um, for your party that you do the other party. So, are you always rationalizing what your party does and always looking for every little thing to critique the other party on? Do you ever critique your own party? Um, these are the types of things that can, at least in our minds, and then I think in the culture, uh, start creating new norms uh, and new systems of behavior. Um, that start to dislodge this um, this polarization that has so infected our politics and, and even our very own communities. I suppose that point got a lot easier for you to make after the rise of Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there, there are some. Um, well, and honestly, that is, um, you know, you know that, that is an opportunity. And I, I think if the, if the Republicans had elected Ted Cruz, or certainly Marco Rubio, I think um, I, I think Christians would, you know, out of a political calculus and, and a, you know a reasonable one as far as you know political strategies go, um, be be wary of critiquing, um, you know, uh, a, a president who basically shared their beliefs and um, you, know, you know whose political success you know meant, meant you know their success to, to some degree in the political arena. For Donald Trump, um, uh, Christians will not want to have their causes identified with Donald Trump after Donald Trump leaves office. Right. And so, yes, social conservatives um, can try and get the short-term wins that that are possible with a Republican administration that would not be possible with a Democratic administration. Um, uh, but they also need to be operating on a parallel track that makes sure – that Donald Trump is not the face of the pro-life movement in 2020 <laughs> or 2021 or 2025 after he's gone. Um, all of the short-term victories that are built uh, on that ground will uh, quickly be hollowed out underneath them. And, and, and so I, I think you're asked, I think having Donald Trump as the head of the Republican Party opens up opportunities for Christians to engage. Uh, in a more honest way politically than maybe they would have felt free to do otherwise. All right. One final question. Did Barack Obama read your book? <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, uh, I'll, I'll let you know uh, if, if, I, if I get a note from him. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us. Hey, thank you so much. Really appreciate it.